This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 31, in which Harold serves a foreign emperor, part one. Sigurdsson, exile and mercenary, has entered the revered city his people called Miklagard. He's no doubt toured the city and taken in the sights like the Hippodrome and the breathtaking Hagia Sophia. But it's time to get to work. And for a man with Harold's talents and experience, even though he's only 20 years old, his work was warfare. And being Scandinavian, the Varangian Guard just seemed to fit. Today we build upon what we talked about on the last episode and take a look at not only the crazy year of 1035, the year Harold arrives in Constantinople among so many other things, but we'll also take a closer look at that elite unit of Scandinavian warriors, the mind of a warrior, and take the opportunity to get a jump start on Harold's first taste of war in the South. I hope you enjoy the show. We've returned time and time again to this year so far in the podcast. Well, it's just one of those years where things all over just seem to shift all at once, like like seismically shift. Now, in addition to Canute the Great's death, which triggered the collapse of his North Sea Empire, essentially... Uh, balrogging it like a whip to Gandalf's unsuspecting leg and dragging it down with him. You know, we're very familiar by now of Duke Robert I's pilgrimage to Jerusalem and subsequent death, thus leaving his seven-year-old son William under a mountain of student loan debt. No, obviously that's not true. William's situation wasn't that bad. Also, with the death of Swain Knutsen, the despised tyrant of Norway, Magnus Olafsson, Olaf II's illegitimate son, would take the reins of the embattled northern kingdom and seek to further separate it from Danish influence. But, I mean, (laughs) 1035 was hardly done, folks. With all that was happening, a major development, though completely under the radar at the time, occurred in the history of free markets when Emperor Conrad II of the Holy Roman Empire declared that the modern-day Slovenian city of Kalper could assume a modicum of autonomy by granting its people the ability to to establish a literal market. Lots to unpack there, it's not that simple, but suffice it to say that this move will increase in frequency throughout the Middle Ages all across the continent in the coming decades and centuries. In Iberia, Sancho III, or Sancho the Great, king of Pamplona, died in 1035, which 
will have rippling effects in the region due to him dividing his kingdom between his four sons and saying on his deathbed, you know, okay, kids, play nice when I'm gone. In West Francia, Count Baldwin IV, ally of Duke Robert of Normandy, well, he died too that year. Well, let's just leave it for the moment with this. His son, Baldwin V, would become Count and play a peripheral role in some of the most important events of the 11th century. More on him as we go, of course. But 1035, despite what it seems so far, wasn't just about, you know, death, death, death. The miracle of life would also make its appearances. A figure I know only in name and role, who will cause William the Conqueror more than a few headaches in the future, named Hereward the Wake, or as he would come to be known, was born in 1035. Earl Godwin, the powerful English nobleman and Earl of Wessex, was only gaining in power every year, but he would also gain another son in 1035. This kiddo would be named Leofwin, younger brother of Harold Godwinson. And finally, 1035 gifted history with just one more global game-changer. As a boy, he would be known as Otho. As a young monk, he would be known as Odo of Châtillon. But as a man, having risen in the ranks of Catholic hierarchy, he would be known for all time as Pope Urban II, the man who called for a holy crusade to take back Jerusalem for the Muslims. From the Muslims, excuse me. 1035, on top of it all, was the year that Harold Sigurdsson, half-brother to a slain king, veteran of the Battle of Stickelstad, high-ranking military leader of the Kievan Rus, adventurer, poet, or scald as they called it, 20-year-old. Well, he found himself now over 2,300 miles, that is more than 3,500 kilometers, away from home, standing at the center of the medieval Western world, Constantinople. There's really no telling what Harold's first job was in Constantinople, or even if joining the elite Varangian Guard even was his first gig, but we know that he would pretty quickly join their ranks. 1035 would be the year when a Norse po political refugee would truly begin his bid for greatness by serving a foreign emperor. In 1035, the Eastern Roman Empire, that would, you know, come to be called the Byzantine Empire, a name that, if you'll forgive the podcast, we'll just refer to it as Byzantine from now on. Well, the Byzantine Empire, as it were, was reeling from the death of Basil II, known as Basil the Great and Basil the Bulgar Slayer. Basil the Great because Constantinople had experienced a cultural and commercial boon and boom with Basil's reforms, namely those limiting the power and influence of the political elite, while promoting the general welfare of the peasant and middle class. The Basil and Basil the Bulgar slayer, due to the fact that, well, I mean, the, the guy led a 20-year campaign of terror against the resistant neighbors to his northwest, well, slaying Bulgars. With his northern borders settled and the empire on a 
semi-firm footing, a brief 11th century golden age of sorts was flowering in Constantinople in the 1010s and 1020s, producing beautiful works of art and literature, as well as economic prosperity not witnessed in that lifetime. It's worth noting here that Basil II was also the emperor who formally created the very unit that Harold had become a member of, again, called the Varangian Guard. Varangians, you'll remember, was simply a term the Greek-speaking Byzantines called Vikings from Sweden and Kievan Rus territory. Even though Harold was, by definition, no Varangian, being a Norseman, the term came to refer to any member of the emperor's personal bodyguard, which numbered in the thousands. By the time Harold stepped foot inside the ancient high walls of Constantinople, the Varangian Guard was officially around 50 years old. Though emperors long before Basil II employed Varangians in the Byzantine military as mere mercenaries, and it wasn't until Basil II and Vladimir the Great, if you remember that was Yaroslav the Wise's father in Kiev, well it wasn't until Basil and Vladimir negotiated a trade. Basil's sister in hand in marriage for, for, for full conversion to Christianity and over 6,000 Varangian warriors. Fair trade, I suppose. But this golden age of Basil's was short-lived due to sheer greed and mismanagement by the elite, who was ecstatic to be out from under the yoke of Basil's wealth-despising policies. It was, for lack of a strong emperor with a clear vision, a virtual free-for-all in terms of the unofficial restructuring of the financial institutions that for a time held this same elite in check and allowed the peasantry to prosper. Yeah, well that was long gone now, now that the cat was away. Away like forever away. Harold, at 20 years old, swore to protect Emperor Michael IV, whose attentions were, thanks to Basil II, uh, well, they weren't to the northeast with those pesky Bulgars who had caused trouble for a century or so already. Or rather, Michael IV was focused in the opposite direction, the south and southeast. Running an empire was no treat, unless you were Basil's brother, who reigned from Basil's death in 1025 to about 1027 or 1028. This guy, I mean, he'd lived quite happily in his brother's gigantic shadow for decades, and, well, at over 60 years old, why should he just give up his cush life of hunting, partying, and late nights playing Call of Duty with his boys. But Michael IV didn't have the same luxury. I mean, the guy's wife, Emperor Call of Duty's daughter, actually, had already killed one husband of hers. What's to say he wasn't next? In addition to that, he ruled an empire that covered over half of the Black Sea coastline, the entirety of Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey, nearly as far south as Tyre and Damascus along the Mediterranean coast, the strategically important islands of Cyprus, Rhodes, and Crete, all of modern-day Greece holding the Aegean Sea firmly in his grasp, effectively pulling trade into and out of the Black Sea, which was very lucrative, mind you, and as far north as the crossroads city of Belgrade, as well as the heel and toe of the boot of Italy. Geographically, this was a 
massive chunk of land incorporating Greeks, Jews, Bulgarians, Muslims, Southern Pechenegs and Slavs, Italians and Turks, among so many other smaller groups. However, holding this vast expanse as one united polity, well, shall we say, fell to lesser men. By 1035, after just 10 years of said mismanagement and greed and a return to excess, the glory days of Basil II had ushered in, well, they were but a distant memory. It takes but a little for a people to notice subtle shifts in culture and changes to the accepted norms and customs and laws. However, to a visitor, it takes quite a bit more for that person to notice those same shifts. So it's quite possible that Harold could have been overwhelmed by the city and its incredible monuments to its ancient successes and modern achievements, while those residents who remembered the days of Emperor Basil might have sneered at his wide-eyed wonder. Perspectives are interesting. But every great society finds itself, from time to time, tested by the excesses and mismanagement of quote-unquote lesser people. By creating an empire based on a cult of personality rather than a semi-autonomous polity, Canute's North Sea Empire didn't stand a snowball's chance after his death. And by molding his empire into a society that enriched its lower-class citizens while limiting its upper-class excesses, Basil failed to create an empire that would ensure these same protections after his passing which one could argue could be the chief weakness of an empire as an idea to begin with. Eventually, Harold and his contingent of around 500 Scandinavian and Rus warriors that accompanied him from Kiev, well, they landed, they landed a gig as members of the Byzantine Emperor's elite royal bodyguard unit. Now, we've mentioned the Varangian Guard a few times on the podcast already, and I think we've got the basics. The deal struck between Vladimir the Great of Kiev, convert to Christianity, marries Basil's, Basil II's daughter in exchange for peace, uh, and 6,000 or so highly skilled and highly lethal warriors as a gift of goodwill to the emperor. Uh, this all happening around 986. The basics, right? Okay, so what does it take to be a Varangian Guard warrior then? Why all the fuss about Varangians? Or what the Byzantines called warriors from Sweden and Slavic Rus territories. Well, the truth is, unfortunately, we don't know a whole heck of a lot about the Varangian Guard. There's certainly a respectable number of shout-outs and mentions in the records of the times, like a friend who's tagged in a number of pictures from a party but never actually posts anything of their own, you know? But history is chock-full of elite groups of warriors, so it's beneficial to take a quick look at them so that we may cautiously apply those traits to our understanding of members of the Varangian Guard. That said, and if I could italicize my words, I would do that right now. That said, we should highlight that word cautiously, as we cannot apply full truth to history without actual proof. Any historian worth their salt would tell you that. We just don't know. One day, we may actually uncover more specifics about the Varangians in Constantinople, which might confirm or negate our cautious thoughts. So I urge you to be open when new information or data becomes available. But right now, this is what we have. 
It's clear that elite units of warriors throughout history share many traits, which is why we're going to take a look at them. These traits, valor, courage, loyalty, dedication, discipline, just to name a few. In the modern world, we already readily recognize those fighting units who are the elite of the elite. From the United States Navy SEALs, Green Berets, and Army Rangers, to the Israeli Special Forces and the Iranian Quds Force, and from the Army Ranger Wing of Ireland and the Turkish Maroon Berets, to the Special Air Services of the United Kingdom, our world is full of these organized fighting units who hold a position of high esteem and far higher expectations. It doesn't matter if you're serving in a special forces unit in a first world nation or a third world nation. If you're a warrior, then you tend to think differently than others. Like myself, I'm not going to lie. I've always been fascinated by the mindset of a warrior, and the Varangian Guard and Harold Sigurdsson give me an opportunity to, you know, look into it in a little bit more depth. Now, what does our modern world's fighting forces have to do with these ancient ones? One listener of the show criticized my comparisons already, and I think it's worth explaining here. Learning history is not a passive activity. I trust most of you listening to this show, uh, listening to this already know this. But there are some who feel that the facts are all that matter in history. But that mindset, you know, the mindset like the one who took issue uh, with that comparison in my dehumanization tactics toward political opponents a few episodes back, and how folks today use that same shameful but unfortunately effective tactic, just like our ancestors unfortunately did as well. You know, before we continue on our talk, I, I just, I hope you understand why I will continue to engage with this material in a way that is more than just passive entertainment. I learned history by learning and embracing its context. It's, it had nothing to agree or disagree with the context. It's just about learning it and, and understanding it and saying, you know what, that's what it is. Whether that context is acceptable today or not. By comparing and contrasting special forces units of today, specifically on this episode, with special forces units of centuries and millennia ago, well, this allows me to understand and engage in a way that helps me organize this information. It also allows me to connect with the information, bring it to life in a way. We know the psychology of a warrior today because that field of science has developed. So it's entirely acceptable to cautiously apply, again, cautiously, apply it to those special forces warriors of our past as well. In my opinion, those who deny the context of the past those who feel today humans have evolved beyond the evils of warrior cultures, well, they deny their past, and they deny their own contexts, and they deny themselves the opportunity to engage deeply in the material. I hope you agree, but if you don't, that's all right, too. So, back to our warrior mindset. What mindset would Harold have had to have when he joined the Varangian Guard anyway? Looking at warriors today and studying the words of those who knew them in the past can offer some intriguing thoughts on the matter. This quote is taken from Michael Askin's tremendous book, Warrior Mindset, Mental Toughness Skills for a Nation's Peacekeepers, 
but the Department of the United States Army Field Manual 3-05.70 states, quote, a key ingredient in any survival situation is the mental attitude of the individual involved, end quote. Straight from the U.S. Army's Field Manual. So taking a look at the warrior mindset, Harold's supposed mindset as a Varangian Guard member is important. Uh, it's an important aspect to our talk of Harold's time in Constantinople, if you ask me. Sun Tzu, the Chinese author of The Art of War, I hope I pronounced that right. I've heard it pronounced a few different ways. Well, Sun Tzu once said, quote, victorious warriors win first and then go to war, while defeated warriors go to war first and then seek to win, end quote. The winning mindset, a competitive mindset, got it. Is it a game, though? Is war, that is conflict of any sort, is it, are those games? Well, if you consider a game simply as a context of, or excuse me, a contest of wills, when two people pit their absolute bests against one another, then I, I yeah, right? I mean, war can be seen as a game. We speak of war as a game in terms of winning and losing, Turkish MMA fighter Gokan Saki once said one of my favorite quotes about the warrior mentality. He said, quote, I don't know I'm going to win. I just know I'm not going to lose. End quote. And there it is again. Conflict is a gamble of wills, and war ups the ante. Winning, losing. Sun Tzu boils this gamble down to the word victory when he said, quote, Victory is reserved for those who are willing to pay its price. I'll say that again. Victory is reserved for those who are willing to pay its price. End quote. Harold, in becoming a warrior at 15 years old, maybe even before, but that's the first recorded time. You know, Harold growing up on the Kievan Rus battlefield afterwards and Harold donning the Byzantine cross in combat. He must have adopted much of this attitude, this attitude that there's, that there's no one better than he at what he does. And what he does is war. To date, Harold, Harold has seen Norsemen versus Norsemen. He's seen Pecheneg versus Rus, as well as Rus versus Rus and Rus versus Polish. And in the service of a foreign emperor, he would see combat on a far larger scale and in far different environments. Harold grew up on the battlefield. Let's just call it what it is. Harold, make no mistake, was a very, very dangerous man. Harold would fit into the Varangian Guard nicely as the world in which Harold lived, a world unspeakably different to our own on a number of levels, was a very very hostile place. Death, or some sign or evidence of it, was everywhere in the 11th century, and one's survival depended on a level of controlled hostility. Harold, as have countless others, men and women alike, they must have, he must have had that look in his eyes. They always talk about that look in their eyes. Some say that you can tell a warrior by that look a laser focus, and a serenity that no one else in the room has. 
It's a level of assurance that many of us simply can't adopt. Famed 20th century martial artist, love this guy, Bruce Lee, knew this very well. Reflecting upon the peace many warriors have, he once said, quote, The most dangerous person is the one who listens, thinks, and observes, end quote. I apply this to Harold, and I find a man who's most likely quieter than his fellow soldiers, sitting back during a raucous good time, smiling sometimes, but, but listening always, silent always. The old saying, silent men are like still waters, both are deep and both are potentially dangerous. Harold, I don't know, I, I imagine Harold was like still waters. And maybe I'm stretching here, but it's interesting to challenge any criticism that, come my, that might come my way for applying this mindset, these, these characteristics to Harold. If people throughout history, from different places and different cultures, and different situations, all come in their writings, all come to the, sim to the same conclusions, what else could we conclude? But this next point is one that they all seem to readily adopt and many times lead with in their writings. There's a sense of material and emotional detachment deep in their psyches. Maybe it wasn't always there. Maybe Harold developed it over years of both witnessing as well as inflicting pain and death upon others. But I'm convinced of this point that Harold had the same detachment when it came to his own death, as have the vast majority of warriors to have served in a special forces unit throughout history. American author John Eldridge, in his book, Wild at Heart, Discovering the Secret of a Man's Soul, well, he wrote of this attitude toward death that many warriors have. He said, quote, the most dangerous man on earth is the man who has reckoned with his own death. All men die. Few men ever really live. End quote. This detachment, this reckoning and acceptance of one's own death could lie at the very heart of why men like Harold, even today, become servants of their people by becoming warriors for their people whether in the service of themselves, like Harold, or in the service of their own people, like the Spartans of old. Service despite consequences, and I have that in quotation in my notes here, service despite consequences was the name of the game mentally, it seems. In the classic novel of World War II, The Thin Red Line, written by James Jones in 1962, it states, quote, an elite unit is only elite when the majority of its members consider themselves already dead. End quote. Just have to let that one sit for a minute. There's no question that having followed Harold for this long, he was in it for his own gain. Glory, wealth, influence, these were all Harold's goals, and, and he, would have, he would inevitably catch, cash it all in at some point in the future. But for now, in 1035, serving an emperor at the heart of the 11th century world and protecting people that couldn't give a rip about him, 
you know, being a foreigner and all. Well, Harold, he was in a good position, a very good position. Harold Sigurdsson, half-brother of a soon-to-be saint, an assassinated king of Norway, was a Varangian guard. He was, as they say, an elite warrior among other elite warriors. In the book God's Viking by Nick Fields, it's a book about Harold. Nick Fields fleshes this idea of the elite out in detail in order to fully grasp how societies divide themselves into hierarchies of competencies. He describes four types of elite, actually. The elite of birthright, the elite of merit, the elite of functionality, and the elite of power. He explains that a functional elite holds, quote, particular positions in society essential for its efficient and effective operation. This bureaucratic elite is made up of key civil servants, and it can also include, here it is, a military elite. So within the functional elite, you might also see a military elite. And by the way, that's end quote. It's safe to conclude that the Varangian Guard fell under that military elite category, but that excludes them from other parts of the hierarchy of competencies within the Byzantine world, such as those of power and merit in particularly. Being a functional elite, well, it essentially boiled you down to a bureaucrat for those reading between the lines. Now, I have no way to prove this, but I, I just feel like men like Harold Sigurdsson weren't keen on the idea of simply being a bureaucrat, you know, a, a cog in a wheel, so to speak. This is exactly why I used the word inevitable when I mentioned Harold's eventual departure from Constantinople. One piece of evidence that supports my claim that he wasn't too keen about being a simple bureaucrat falls to one simple detail, one that's always mentioned about him but never fleshed out, at least not that I've found, so excuse me if, the, if it has. And see, if Harold was okay, and here's my, here's my idea, if Harold was okay with remaining a part of the functional elite of a foreign state, then why would he send vast majorities of his plunder and paycheck earned in the Varangian Guard to Yaroslav the Wise in Kiev. This happened his whole time in Constantinople. That alone alludes to Harold's self-awareness and his focus on the future. While most probably looked at the, while most probably looked, excuse me, at the Varangian Guard as an end, you know, a coffin job, so to speak. Harold clearly had other plans. The quiet guy in the back of the party, he was listening. He was patient. And one day, he would act. But not yet. Harold rode with his emperor, first east through Anatolia, and then southeast into Muslim-held lands only recently lost by Byzantium. He would don the fighting attire of his fellow guardsmen, consisting of the infamous and deadly two-handed battle axe, or Dane axe as it was called by the Greeks and Muslims. They would hold it, see, over their left shoulder, but most soldiers were right-handed. Well, that means that the opponent's weapon would be held in the right hand and their shield in their left hand. 
If the Varangian's lead hand on the axe was his right hand, then the natural angle of the swing would be blocked by the shield. So by keeping the left hand as the lead hand, meaning that's why it's over their left shoulder, by keeping the left hand as the lead hand on the axe, the angle of the swing, the natural angle of the swing would compromise the opponent's right side, possibly throwing them off balance by, you know, having to swing their shield across their whole body. But if anything, it would eliminate the opponent's ability to swing their own weapon. These Dane axes were no joke either. They weighed almost four pounds or 1.73 kilograms. And from sharp pointy handle tip at the bottom, called a knob, sometimes they were sharp. They weren't always sharp and pointy, but sometimes they were sharp and pointy on purpose, you know, to, to have another uh, to have another way to hurt their opponents, you know. Well, from the, the sharp pointy handle tip at the bottom called the knob again, all the way up the shaft to the eye, or the place where the handle fits into the hole in the metal, these things were anywhere between, if you can believe it, four feet to four and a half feet. That is 120 centimeters to 140 centimeters. I mean, these were serious weapons, but you know, that's not all. If it didn't break through a helmet, it could still cause serious damage. Archaeologists, check this, have found ancient battlefields known to have had Varangian warriors present through records. And what they've found is shocking. Helmets have been caved in, but not pierced. The length of the indentation excuse me, perfectly matches the length of the rounded Dane axe. And what's more is that the head still in the helmet had its skull completely crushed beneath that indentation. Which brings me to this quote by Nick Fields in that same book, God's Viking, written about Harold Hardrada's life. He says, quote, The size and weight of this weapon, of course, indicated the type of man who wielded it. End quote. Scandinavians at the time were larger and bulkier than many others, a trend you tend to see in colder climates. Sometimes, but not always, you know. And we know that Harold was larger than most others, too, which will lead to a great quote attributed to Harold Godwinson, uh, you know, about Harold Hardrada, roughly 30 years into Harold's future here. A lot of Harold's going on, I know. It's only going to get worse in the next season, sorry. But the, the quote I'll save, that gem is a great one, I'll save it for later. But it does have to do with how large Harold was known to be. Harold, no doubt, already proficient with the Dane axe, knew of its many uses, too. The way in which the blade was shaped, that is, incredible sharp outer edge with a needle, uh, sharp needle-like point at its edges curved backwards on purpose, allowed a return blow should he swing and miss the target. So if you swing and miss the target, you could always pull it back really harshly, and the Dane axe actually curved so when you pull it backwards, it could still inflict damage. When he pulled the axe back for another swing, he could position it, basically, to come back and pierce the opponent from the back or the side, or even tripping the opponent by sweeping his legs out from under him. Any advantage you have. I mean, war is, a, again, a game without rules in the end. And I've compared briefly the Dane axe to the wood axe on the podcast before. 
but I saved one interesting tidbit for this chat about the Varangians. When swinging a heavier wood axe, one should have their non-dominant hand down on the knob of the axe, while the dominant hand is near the head when lifting in, in a swing. During the swing, one's dominant hand slides down the axe as it swings forward, thus producing the torque necessary to chop lumber. However, with a shorter, lighter Dane axe, this was not really the case. The left hand tended to be the dominant hand, as I said, over the left shoulder. So even right-handers practiced with their left hand, with the Dane axe. Holding the axe near the knob allows for a farther reach, but the closer the fighting got, the higher both hands grasped. This increased the speed of the swing, but lessened the power as the fulcrum went from the shoulder to the elbow to the wrist. And again, if an opponent parried, the return swing could catch the opponent off guard and deliver a, a pretty surprising and often devastating injury. Most Varangians left their shields behind when heading in, out into battle. Not all. Not all, obviously, as you'll see in a minute. They would charge into the fray with a four-foot-long axe in one hand, swinging it in many directions as they got closer, while in their right hand, they would either have that, uh, have that, that shield, excuse me, they would have that shield or they would be holding a spear, dropping the spear when necessary, usually when the fighting got a little up close and personal. Wielding two weapons simultaneously took a great deal of discipline as well as mental capacity. An axe and a spear simply don't function in the similar roles outside of killing. You handle them differently in both offense and defense, and as I said, you chose to make yourself more vulnerable in the process. Again, combat's a game in the end. It's a gamble. I haven't found anything stating whether Harold chose a shield or not, specifically. However, we know the way in which Varangians and other Scandinavians fought the shield wall. We've talked about it. And we know that, we, that they used the shield wall when fighting alongside and against the likes of William Ironarm in Apulia and Sicily a few years from now into Harold's future. But Nick Fields also offered a fun nugget about the Varangian attitude toward war as it pertains to a game-like adventure. He explains that runes show us that many Scandinavian Vikings named their battle axes, much like fighter pilots and ship captains named their vessels. So being Scandinavian, we can assume that this tradition was shared by those in the service of the Byzantine emperor too. Harold's half-brother, Olaf II Haraldson, he named his battle axe Hel, that is H-E-L, after the Norse goddess of death, who shared the name with the location of the underworld. Sound familiar? She's often depicted as half alive and half dead, which is really intriguing to me. I'm sorry I can't help this. I can't help but interpret this in light of the attitude toward Olaf II, who was later canonized as a Norse holy man for his vehement enforcement of Christianity among the people of Norway, often violent, as the ancient idea that also popped up in the Renaissance with Dante's Inferno trilogy. And again, today, in, you know, as, as an example, there's a sitcom called The Good Place. Best show on television, just saying. 
The idea that one can only reach a state of being in line with nature through one's own learning of the demons within oneself and acknowledging them. It's that fascinating idea. So like hell, H-E-L that is, the warrior has one foot in life and one foot in death. Essentially, through hell, Olaf redeemed you. Through self-reflection, we redeem ourselves. Sorry, you'll see on my Instagram feed that I've been poring over medieval philosophy lately. But it still fits in our current narrative as intelligence, believe it or not, was arguably the most valued aspect of a Varangian. Intelligence was valued far more than strength and size. As anyone knows war, knows how every second is a problem to be solved. And when the shield wall collapsed, Varangians were known to instantly form pairs with those around them until space opened up again. These pairs were interesting too, as the, as the one on the right protected the pair with a shield and brandished a, a short sword as well, while the man on the left had nothing but a Dane axe over his left shoulder. So we've discussed the likely mindset of typical Varangians. We looked at the practicalities of Varangian warfare, such as shields and shield walls and Dane axes and pairing up when things began to collapse. But psychological warfare, warfare was also a big part for Varangians as well. 11th century Byzantine chronicler Michael Sellis once witnessed firsthand the Varangian guard protecting Emperor Michael VII. He wrote the following words, quote, the guards banged on their shields all together, bawled their heads off as they shouted their war cry, clashed sword on sword with answering yells and went off to the emperor thinking he was in danger. Then, forming a circle about him so that no one could approach, they carried him off to the upper parts of the palace. End quote. Sounds like a rehearsed gig, a well-disciplined group. There was no mistaking the loyalty of a Varangian that a Varangian had for his emperor. Or the emperor's money, <laughs> I think is more appropriate. But like anything relating to the Viking, loyalty was a malleable thing. It could be molded, it could be bent to meet one's own needs, as opposed to the prior agreement. Whatever that may have been. Just ask King Ethelred II, or even Edric Streona, or or any number of Norman nobles who sought to kill young Duke William. Loyalty to a Viking oftentimes had an expiration date, as I've said. It was never an end. It was always a means. And having poured over this information as much as I have, I hope it doesn't make me a bad person to admit that I can kind of see why they had this attitude. It's not that I would ever adopt it for myself, but I can understand it at least. That's what I'm trying to say. You know, hear me out, though. These Varangians could, at any given moment, be killed in battle. They give everything they have, and if they do survive, they're paid. This process repeats indefinitely. Well, until it doesn't. In the end, Varangians were mercenaries, despite the revered position they, they might have had uh, protecting the emperor. Throughout history, mercenaries were, simply put, valued until they were no longer valued. But to be fair, they held their benefactor in the same regard. For every time a group 
of, of mercenaries was massacred to avoid payment. Yes, that happened. There were other times when an emperor or king was overthrown, and those same mercenaries looted their failed benefactor. Hold on to that one too, would you? Just trust me on that one. So since the death of Basil II in 1025, well, things were sliding right back into moral and economic quagmire often seen when the upper classes are able to run rampant. And by 1035, many farmers were forced from their lands, lands that just a decade earlier were pretty prosperous. Or as Lars Brownworth writes in his book Lost to the West, quote, small farmers were virtually driven to extinction, frequently ending up as serfs on their own lands. And since military veterans could no longer afford to farm, the entire system of the peasant soldier collapsed, end quote. Brownworth adds in the footnotes here, uh, a useful piece of information as well. He says, The normal Byzantine practice was to settle veterans on the frontier who would provide a well-trained militia in exchange for land. This had the great advantage of lowering the cost of defense without seriously degrading the empire's safety and had worked magnificently for years. End quote. This only ended, ended in disaster, as without a stout, experienced army, Essentially scattered, fortifying not only the borders, but also the economy. The empire itself, it was weakened. Mercenaries, Brownworth explains, became essential. But weakening frontier security wasn't the only calamity a mismanaged upper class would cause. The questions of how to pay for the mercenaries so necessary for the security of the empire, well, it became a central question in the mid-1030s. Brownworth describes the economic impacts with words and phrases like ruthless taxation, falling on the poor without burdening the rich, peasants at the mercy of their predatory neighbors, and finally foolish empires, he says. Let's stop for a moment and point out one thing. Remember George Maniakes? Yeah, well his rise hinges on these same policies. In fact, it's safe to refer to Maniakes as one of those quote-unquote predatory neighbors Brownworth refers to. But there was a serious devaluation of Byzantine currency, the first time, Brownworth also points out, in more than 700 years. He says, quote, The value of the currency collapsed, sending inflation spiraling, and Byzantium's prestige plummeted as international merchants abandoned the worthless coins, end quote. Even today, when nations struggle and show even the faintest signs of weakness or instability, other nations, like sharks, begin to swarm. A lot's at stake when it comes to geopolitics, let's face it. And like today, when you're at the top, you're seen by all. And when you're seen by all, you're envied by many. And envy can be a dangerous motivator. This high demand for mercenaries might have informed Emperor Michael IV's decision to accept more Varangians in the, way, in the ranks. When the economy collapses and the people have no other choice but to demand change, well, it's certainly not a good place for a political leader to be. Byzantium still had a lot going for it, though. I mean, it still held complete control over the Bosporus Strait, 
thus controlling all major trade routes between the Asian steppes and the Mediterranean, as well as the flow of trade by land being, you know, it could be described the westernmost point of the Silk Road itself. The importance of Constantinople simply cannot be understated when you think about it as the doorway between East and West, and Christians at the time controlled it. And with the cracks publicly now splitting the once shiny facade of this mighty Christian empire, their enemies began amassing, sharks circling their prey. Pechenegs began minor raids in the northern borders in the mid-1030s. But that quickly derailed and they became really belligerent as far south as Greece. Arabs, Lombards, and Serbs alike also grew bolder in their approaches to diplomatic dealings with the mighty empire. And the quelled Bulgarians, still licking their wounds with their tails between their legs, well, a man named Peter Delian began a little campaign of his own in the area that slowly riled his countrymen and women up enough to cause some trouble in the near future. This spurred Michael IV to do something. But where to first? It seemed that the cracks in the Byzantine veneer caused everything to erupt inward. And to top it all off, Michael was worried about his wife, too. Mentioned that already, kind of alluded to it. See, long story short, Zoe Porphyrogenita, or Zoe the Purpleborn, was daughter of the Emperor Call of Duty, as well as the niece of Basil II. But she was also the wife of the former emperor, Romanus III, whom she deceived and had murdered, marrying Michael IV, it's rumored, the same exact day as her husband died in a bathtub. <laughs> Michael was crowned the next day, according to contemporary accounts. Well, if Zoe had cheated on Romanus with Michael, then Michael reasoned that she may do the same to him. So he excluded her from just about every official decision, and he put her under constant guard by a few Varangians. And due to what happened later in Harold's story, I can't help but wonder if Harold was, well, if he was one of those Varangians who guarded her while Michael IV was in town. So eventually, Michael IV moved his army south as the Seljuk Turks were a constant threat to the southeastern edges of the empire. In fact, they'd already, and very quickly, eaten quite a chunk through the central highlands of Anatolia. Harold would see his first battles as a Varangian soldier against them, the fierce Seljuk Turks. And as Michael IV pushed ever southward, amassing victory after victory, Harold would rise among the Varangians to one day be noticed by the emperor himself. On campaign, through the mountains and deserts of Anatolia and the Middle East, it's said that Harold was an integral part of capturing or destroying more than 80 Arab strongholds. He even made it as far as Baghdad itself, which at the time served as the center of not only the Islamic world, but also the intellectual heart of the caliphate, or I should say caliphates, having established the House of Wisdom 200 years earlier. After taking back Edessa, Michael IV promoted Harold, at just 23 years old, to be the leader of the Varangian Guard. This instantly gave Harold Sigurdsson, exile and mercenary, access to the highest corners of Byzantine politics and military matters. Everything Harold 
has decided to do so far has worked out pretty well for him. Remember, if you can believe it, it's only been eight years since he left, since he fled his home in Norway. It's now 1038, and the Empire has only managed to tamp down unrest on its southern borders. What about the, Meredith, uh, the Mediterranean coasts from Jerusalem northward? Or the unrest in Cyprus? Or the Bulgarians? And the Pechenegs? And the Lombards? And the Serbs? I hope you enjoyed today's episode, digging deeper into the mind of a warrior, of a Varangian, as well as taking a look at the problems Constantinople experienced in the face of a greedy upper class. Harold and all that chaos seemed to just slide right into place, didn't it? Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter at Wheel Podcast or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. We've also expanded to the Good Pods app, so I encourage you to head over there and stay in touch. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com and please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you are so inclined. So Harold has, within three years, risen to lead the most elite group of warriors in the medieval world, quelled unrest on the empire's southern and eastern borders against Muslim groups who were understandably taking advantage of a fracturing empire, and even met the famous Byzantine general George Maniakes along the way at the height of the giant man's power and influence. But things are about to get real for Harold. Choices are going to be made, mistakes are going to be amplified, and Harold will finally meet other warriors who may very well be his equal. On the next episode, we will pick up exactly where we left off today. Harold has been named leader of the Varangian Guard, and Michael IV has now set his sights on the quelling, on quelling the unrest and piracy running rampant on his Mediterranean coasts around the Holy Land. Harold will behold the holiest of places, witness the birth of a legend, abandon his general, and earn an epithet that will follow him into history. I can't wait to tell you about it.